I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our audio podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Kyle Cheney to our program today. He is Congress correspondent for Politico. Welcome, Kyle. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Ten Republicans who voted to impeach. Um, Based on your reporting in the hours leading to the vote, did that surprise you or was that what you were expecting? It was actually dead on where we were expecting. Um, we'd heard anywhere between 10 and 12 Republicans were, were on the fence or, or leaning in that direction. And, uh, and that's exactly where it ended up. What we weren't sure of was when Liz Cheney came out publicly, uh, the most prominent Republican to support impeachment, if that would open the floodgates at all, or when Mitch McConnell signaled his ambivalence and maybe openness to conviction, whether that might embolden more. But, it's, but that, that 10 number held pretty steady. Do you attribute that to a generational difference or specifically Trump's loyalties within the House, which is stronger than within the Senate? I I think that's right. I think um, many more of the members in the House can attribute their political fortunes to the the president. They feel more beholden to him. Uh, He still carries enormous sway um, within the Republican Party base and within their districts. So uh, what Liz Cheney did and what these other nine Republicans did uh, is take, an, take a huge risk. And you know, some of them may be in districts where it's a little more palatable, but not Liz Cheney and not some of them certainly came, came from fairly Trump heavy districts. Um, and and uh, if, if there is a serious primary challenge uh, to them from the sort of tr- the, the Trump base, uh, that could be very difficult for them. It's been reported that Congressman Kinsinger of Illinois, who has been an outspoken critic of what he deems Trump's authoritarianism and his authoritarian rhetoric um, requested to speak in support of impeachment and he was turned down. And it did occur to me that while Majority Leader Steny Hoyer gave a, a very compelling speech in which he invoked and referenced Congresswoman Cheney's statement, I was surprised to learn that the Democrats turned down the opportunity to show their bipartisan impeachment. Yeah, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of of hindsight. Some of it will depend on how it goes in the Senate. Um, If he's acquitted, were there missed opportunities here to display that bipartisanship better? A lot of people said Justin Amash should have been given a more prominent role in the first impeachment when he was the only non-Democrat to come out in favor. Um, and so, you know, I think Democrats, you know, the arguments I've heard are, look, um, we're on we're on the right side of this issue. All Republicans should be with us. And so, you know, uh, just, just based on right and wrong. And therefore, you know, we don't need to make a special uh, display that, 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 that a handful of them took the right side here. But they were praiseful of them and said that those people took, did stick their necks out uh, in ways that their colleagues didn't. Is there a sense you have yet of, in the trial, whether or not some of those voices from the House side would be able to testify to their statements, namely Cheney and Kinsinger, maybe Katko as well? Um, you know, that's that's our number one question right now is how will a trial work? Will will we get witness testimony? Will the president get a chance to, to rebut uh, some of the evidence against him and try to push back on why he doesn't deserve conviction? Um, I do think this is so unusual, and I pointed this out, that 
This is a trial where the prosecutors and the jury, in this case, the Senate, are all also victims of the of the alleged crime here, um, which is this insurrection. Uh, you know, these they are now judging the case and trying the case. Uh, so it's a pretty remarkable situation in that sense. And I do think there will be a platform for some of them to sort of make the case. And I also think we're still learning a lot about how this all played out. And, the, you know, de- as new details come out, um, it's clear this is a much more sophisticated attack than people realized and, and may color the way the Senate views uh, and looks at the entire case. In your own experience, how many of your colleagues in the press corps and, and speaking for just yourself felt as though listening to that speech and seeing the crowd emerge as it did, that the potential for rioting was very great. It seemed like while we're learning about the sophistication of it and the fact that it was enabled by uh, some rogue police and political officials, if you were just to see the congregation of the protest turn riot and then the, the president's words themselves, it seems almost inevitable that what transpired would transpire. Well, you know, as a disclaimer, I, I was not in the building and I feel very fortunately fortunate that I wasn't, but many of my colleagues were um, and were truly, you know, terrified for their lives at different points, uh, rightfully so. Um, but I, I think even more so than just looking at what you saw on the screen, we had been reporting for days or weeks even about the potential for violence at this January 6th rally. I mean, long before this crowd congregated, uh, there were concerns that there was mobilization. You could see it on social media, uh, that it was developing. and People were talking about showing up armed. The police were preparing for an armed crowd. Um, so the, the seeds were there. And, you know, regardless of whether the president, in, what the president intended, the intelligence clearly showed that there was some armed element that was planning to be in D.C. Um, you know, and there's very there's a dispute now over just how clear the intelligence was, but there, but it was there. And so, you know, you did have that sense. I mean, we wrote a story a couple of days in advance that the lawmakers are worried about potential violence. Um, we told our colleagues, be careful out there um, on the 6th because it may get it may get ugly. Um, and then it did. So so you could definitely anticipate it. The trauma inflicted, um, the trauma inflicted on Congress people and you and your colleagues is not something that's going to dissipate anytime soon. We, we've learned about the enforcement of metal detectors as well as the mask wearing um, because we know that in the aftermath of this and as a result of Republican members not wearing masks that at least four Democratic members have been infected now with COVID. Um, what is your sense of where Congress goes from here um, on the House side, you know, in the aftermath of impeachment? Um, you know, look, the, the Trump administration is ending and Biden has portrayed himself as a healer and may approach, approach it with that sort of heal, healer type language. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for you know, kumbaya moments in Congress, but at least um, when you have someone who is professing to want want those, uh, maybe that lowers the temperature a bit. And you did hear, you know, look, Mitch McConnell, Liz Cheney, um, sort of being open to, to uh, impeachment and conviction here um, is a is in a weird sense <laughs> a weird sort of bipartisanship we never thought we'd see. And then even Kevin McCarthy, one of the president's closest allies, said, "Look, Joe Biden's a president elect." That that. 
first of all, that shouldn't be newsworthy. Uh, everyone has known that, but but for uh, someone in his position to say that outright for the first time, um, that that was a moment. That was an important moment. Um, and does he uh, find, feel obligated to try to help lower the temperature? Um, and so, you know, there's some hints that it could happen, but but you know, the rank and file Republicans are still firmly with Trump. And as long as he's on trial and, and fighting, uh, they, there may not be a lot of reconciliation. When it comes to the first orders of business, we know there will be a new COVID relief package formulated by the Democratic majorities in both chambers once the Senate is under the command of Democrats. But what are you hearing about the first legislative actions um, separate from COVID, and maybe some of them will be integrated into future relief, uh, but some of the bigger ticket items that were non-starters with the Republican Senate, uh, voting rights, um, mm-hmm. you know, legislation to end the influence of Citizens United decision, um, what are you hearing about maybe the, the legislative approach that the House will, will take? Well, you, you said it right there, voting rights. Um, and Speaker Pelosi has said that, that she wants that to be the first order of business um, when, when they are legislating again. I think it's going to be a little trickier now that you may have a Senate trial um, because usually the first order of business is get all the nominees confirmed and that can, you know, especially to important national security positions. And I think uh, some of that gets a little more complicated when you have a Senate trial going on, um, but that will um, you know, that one, they'll have to iron that out and it may drag a little longer than they would normally like it. Um, but yes, I think COVID relief package, as you said, first, very first order of business. I think Joe Biden's going to do a lot of unilateral things to unwind some unpopular uh, rules among Democrats that Trump uh, applied right before leaving office, things that related to climate change. He wants to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. I think you might see legislation um, along those lines, too. Um, and so, but yes, I think voting rights, uh, things to strengthen democratic institutions that, that a lot of Democrats fear were weakened under Trump are going to be the, the highest priority item. What precipitated the Capitol insurrection was the fraudulent claims of irregularity or fraud. Um, and it would be a, a, an interesting and timely moment for the Democrats to defend the franchise and that may be something that the Democrats in the context of the impeachment um, decide to bring, bring kind of to the fore, which is that this party has to decide if it's for voting rights or against voting rights. Right. And I think, I think all of those things are relevant. Um, You know, Trump has given them a, a chance to have this moment too. He's really teed it up for them. Uh, these false claims of voter fraud and widespread irregularities um, that just fell apart on, on the slightest scrutiny. Um, you know, now you're seeing in a lot of the states, these Republican led states drives to curb a lot of the uh, voting uh, opportunities that, that people took advantage of uh, in this past election uh, that the president claimed were fraudulent, even though that was never shown uh, by any, by any real significant evidence. Um, and and so Democrats are alarmed that, you know, there's going to be these crackdowns based on the false claims, not based on any real evidence. And so I think there's going to be that, you know, I think Democrats are realizing, look, the, the deck is somewhat stacked against them in, in the Senate um, in terms of winning, winning a majority. They've got a 50-50 uh, 
uh, essentially a bare majority right now with the vice president um, coming in. And so now's their chance if they want to cement the, you know, uh, voting protections for a lot of people um, so that they can win elections in the future, or at least secure, you know, their, their voters ability to get out. Um, now is a moment for them to really push on that. In the aftermath of the Trump fraud claims that this was part of a systemic effort to undermine democracy and how much they decide to connect the necessity of voting rights to the attempts to subvert democracy in Pennsylvania and Georgia. I I guess that remains to be seen. You don't have any specific insight into whether Pelosi and the ranking Democrats in, in leadership would want to make that argument they w- that they would want to tie the restoration of voting rights to the false claims of Donald Trump and the suppression by the Republican Party of voting rights over years. Well, no, I, I do actually think that that I think you're absolutely right. They've made no secret that, that this whole campaign by the president to overturn the results shows you how fragile, uh, you know, the, the franchise can be um, when you have someone who's motivated to try to disenfranchise uh, you know, millions of people. And, um, you know, so I think that that will be, you know, they're going to make that case in the in the Senate trial. But I think you're right. It's a very easy, logical leap then to actually legislating voting rights. Uh uh, and, and, you know, a new sort of voter protection bill because, uh, you know, had the thing, had the courts not, not tipped the way they did, had some of these efforts not been as flimsy as, as they were, um, you know, or been better, better lawyered, I guess, on the president's and maybe we're talking about a slightly different situation here. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, there are a couple of close court decisions, like in Wisconsin, four to three decisions that had they tipped the other way, we could still be litigating some of them right now. And I think Dems realized they got away with this because of the the holes and the flaws and the and the lack of evidence um, completely. But but a more competent effort might have made this a much scarier situation during the Trump years when it came to judges on the Senate side. There was not normal order. Um, the typical process by which the state senators would make the suggestions for judicial appointments or U.S. attorneys, that that was not heeded, um, and that everything was virtually rushed. Um, We knew that was the way that Republicans approached the attempt to overturn the Affordable Care Act, and likewise with the tax legislation, there was also a rushed process through that. Was there really a change in how rushed legislation and judges were confirmed and approved over these past four years, or is that not really accurate? No, I, no, I think there, I think there's some truth to it. Um, a lot of uh, norms, I guess, and guardrails that have always been in place informally have been thrown out the window. You know, what, I mean, Obamacare, this whole idea that this whole, you know, giant controversy over, you you know, you you have to pass it to find out what's in it. You know, I think people took that that Pelosi line and ran with it. That's become the norm now with massive spending bills. I mean, the the COVID bill that just passed that was thousands of pages um, that, you know, and, 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 you know, 
a trillion dollars or excuse me, more than that um, with the, you know, along with the company by the spending bill. Um, I mean, they had a couple hours to read that. It was far larger and, and, and then, than almost any bill that had passed before. Um, and so you, yes. And, and the process for confirming judges, things like blue slips that allow home state senators to object, um, th- that's kind of been sidelined. A lot of these sort of very informal processes are, are going away. Now, the, the big question is, will Dems try to erode or take or take out the filibuster, um, for legislation? And it's looking like a no on that because the Senate is so closely divided. I don't think they want to go down that road. Um, but that was sort of the, the, the last huge, um, procedural, uh, safeguard that, you know, that, that stretches back you know, centuries that, that they are going to leave in place, it seems like. And that would take a simple majority to eliminate the filibuster. And by account, if you were just to count the Democrats and independents who caucus with the Democrats, that's 5150. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a question about Senator Manchin and some other Democrats as well, uh, and whether they would proceed with that. Um, what aspects of the process on the House or Senate side do you expect to change in the new Congress? Well, you know, the, the House adopted a rules package that, first of all, <laughs> they're sort of enshrined this proxy voting system, which is uh, just a, a reality of COVID where people can vote um, from from home if they can't, you know, if they don't want to travel because of the, the pandemic um, via their colleagues. So that's an interesting just sort of a, a nuance that it seems like that, that could be here to stay. I don't know. It could just be here through the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, the speakers also tweaked some rules about, you know, the way Republicans can offer motions to recommit, which is just a technical term for uh, forcing uh, debate on, on very politically explosive issues to just sort of that can almost derail in, important pieces of legislation. Um, that became a thorn in the side of Democratic leaders in the last Congress, and that has been diluted a little bit in the new Congress. Um, and so it's, it's things along those lines. The House process is not going to change all that much, except that power continues to be centralized in the Speaker and in the committee chairs, um, who now have even more power to issue subpoenas and things like that and run their own investigations um, versus the membership as a whole. Kyle, there is the argument that some of the circumstances surrounding events in the last months, but specifically with respect to the Capitol insurrection demanded more prompt action. And, and, and it was almost a similar situation to the way that on a variety of issues um, stemming from the Mueller report, uh, specific comments that the president made that were, betraying America's interests in Helsinki that, you know, she delayed impeachment as long as possible. And even though impeachment was rather quickly adopted after the insurrection, there was a similar call for impeachment in the hours following the attack. And there is the suggestion by some observers that had the vote been taken within 24 hours of the attack that the Republicans would not have been able to stand behind Trump and that there would have been more um, defections. So my final question is two parts. One is 
the Speaker of the House is the Speaker of the House, and technically she could have, right, under her presiding over the House, enacted that push for impeachment, you know, in the hours after the certification. The question is, did she have the power to do that? And if she didn't have the power to do that, why didn't she do that? So she she does have the the power, but I think, you know, what the speaker always needs to do and what she's always been so good at over the years is having the temperature of, of her full caucus before she moves on anything, especially something that can be politically perilous. And while politics was not as huge of a part of, of this impeachment as it, as it was the prior, you know, the prior one, which again, not to say it was political necessarily, but there was a lot more time to sit there and think through what are the political ramifications here. Um, uh, you know, I think she, they needed to re- regroup. They, you know, I mean, to be honest, we, we've reported they, they they started crafting the strategy while they were still, uh, you know, in shel- sheltering in place at the Capitol. As some of the Judiciary Committee members got together and, and talked about this because they recognized the need for it. Um, but at some point, they have to t- get their members on the phone. They have, have con- conference calls, get a sense of, is everyone moving this direction? And the answer was pretty clearly yes. But then they have to decide, you know, there's a lot of legal and very technical and tricky legal questions about impeachment is what do you charge? Is the does the evidence support it? And and are we trying to win Republican votes? Um, you know, what's our goal here? Are we trying to make this a case that could be could lead to conviction? Um, and then this tradition of impeachment, too, where you offer due process, you offer chances for the president to respond. Um, you gather the evidence and put it in one place. They skipped a lot of those steps. Um you know, this time to move things along. Um, and not to mention you layer on top of that, the uh, president leaving office on January 20th, only a few days away. Um, you know, that was, that had to layer over the entire process. So um, c- considering all of that, they moved extremely quickly to get it done in one week. Um, uh, could they have done it quicker? I think you saw a lot of appetite for that among people who were the most, um, upset about what happened on, on Wednesday. Everyone was upset, but some people were with literally while sheltering saying, we got to impeach this guy tomorrow. Um, but I think she had to, to get the temperature of the full caucus, which took some time. Had they moved faster, do you think that it would have been more effective in getting more Republican support? It would have been riskier, maybe, but, you know, it's, it's riskier because, you, you know, the further you get from these events, and we've seen this in the past, the easier it is for everyone to sort of revert to their political baseline, which is defending the president, staying on the team. And so that's a, one reason people were worried about a delay in the Senate trial was you get too far away from, from the, the, the events, you get too far away from the Trump presidency and the appetite for crossing uh, his base and crossing him starts to dissipate. So, so yeah, I think in that moment, uh, you might have had a lot more people re- voting out of out of passion and anger, um, you know, and then waiting a few days gave everyone a chance to regroup and say, do we want to do this or not? Um, but I don't know if there, there would have been a pathway um, on the Democratic side had they not uh, waited and gotten the temperature among those members, too. Kyle Cheney, congressional correspondent for Politico. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks for having me again.